Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Stuart and Courtney, very much for leading us. And I pray that it's helped us already to begin to see where we're going to be heading this morning. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to join me in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 18. And read through verse 22 as we are in part two of a sermon entitled The Suffering of Christ. And so uh, let me read the text and we're going to dive in. And just a, a means of uh, encouragement this morning that uh, these verses of Scripture have been debated uh, a lot in church history. And so there's going to be a, a variety of things that I want to just first help try to make this passage clear about what it's saying um, and then also uh, bring it to ap- application for us that we can, it would encourage us to know and, and understand the desire that Peter has in communicating to us. And so that's our goal this morning, that we would be able to do both of those things as we um, navigate through this passage together. So let me read our text, and then we'll uh, dive right in and, and unpack where we were last week really quickly, and then move into where we will be this morning. So First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Bible says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So the sufferings of Christ, that's our aim. It's our theme this morning. As we spoke on just very briefly last week, we're coming out of uh, two weeks ago where Pastor Tim was preaching uh, and how he was communicating suffering for righteousness sake. And so in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed in that. And in verse 17, the verse that precedes the section that we're in, uh, immediately precedes the section that we're in. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And so then it begs the question, well, then is it God's will? Is it suffering a means by which God uses? And Peter's argument continues to be able to move from there to go, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Yes, it, it can be and oftentimes is God's will for us. Sins and sinners that would be attacking the Savior, and it can seem like defeat and, and the destruction of God's will and purpose and plan. They were All the, the Jews were looking for him to be a Messiah, that the governments would rest upon his shoulders, that there would be a kingdom that would reign, and that he would overthrow Rome, and, and yet all those things come tumbling down when their Messiah is crucified on a cross. But it's in that suffering that ultimately triumph happens. It's through that means that ultimately Christ is resurrected 
And through his resurrection, the ultimately verse 22 happens. And in verse 22, who has gone, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven as the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. That he made payment for sin and he made payment for sinners that would repent of those sins and place their faith and trust in him. And so in that, Christ's sufferings were intentional. And so as we see in our our notes, and if you have a copy of those notes, it's in the week bulletin, you'll see the first five blanks that we had covered last week were filled. I just want to go over those briefly with us. And there was an entire sermon on that, so I'm not going to expound upon them very much. But the suffering of Christ, number one, is for our example. That's what it says there. For Christ also suffered once for sins. That also speaks of him suffering as well as that the suffering that we would be able to go, go through. Number two, it was not only uh, for us, it was an example. It was sacrificial. For Christ also suffered once for sins. And so knowing he was an example to us, that we would live and we would not revile uh, when we suffer and we were reviled, just as Jesus did not revile when he suffered. Not only it was an example, but it was sacrificial. It was making payment for something. It was uh, for sins. So the word sins there, as we spoke of last week, is a reference to the sacrificial system, system and a sin offering, as we saw in Romans 8 and Hebrews 10. And ultimately, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, Hebrews 9, 22. And so ultimately, there was to make a sacrifice or an atonement for sins. And so then not only was it an example and it's sacrificial, but it was final. It was a final sacrifice, whereas the in the sacrificial system, the, the priest would be making payment, first of all, uh, making uh, sacrifices for their sins and then for the sins of the people. And this would be happening daily. And then once a year, uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, there would be uh, a massive sacrificial system that would take place, a, macro, a massive sacrifice on the behalf again and again and again, the shedding of bulls, goat, blood and goats, blood, uh, and a variety of other means. Ultimately, this was the, the picture there of sins being atoned for once a year. This was exactly what was taking place. Um, that ultimately it wasn't just had, had to happen every year, but it was on once for sins. We're in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once. And so we see that this high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, did not have sins that he didn't atone for for himself, but simply was making atonement for the sins of others. And then as a result, it was a gracious substitution. The suffering was a gracious substitution. It says for the righteous, the righteous for the unrighteous. And so you see in First Peter one twenty two or chapter two verse twenty two, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And so that would be the righteous or the just or the sinless. And it was now a payment made for the unjust, the unrighteous, the sinful. And that's where you see in First Peter two verse twenty four, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been. Healed. This is exactly all that we've been singing about and rejoicing over this morning. Second Corinthians five twenty one. Um, For our sake, He made Him, meaning Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And so you see that it was for us a gracious substitution. And then the uh, last thing that we covered last week was the suffering of Christ is for our reconciliation, and that. Meaning that he might, through that means, bring us to God. This is how we're able to enter into boldly the throne room of grace. This is why that entering, that we're able to pray that he's made intercession or he is currently making intercession for us. And that we don't have a right. Unbelievers do not have a right to, to petition God. 
So we talked about just a few weeks ago, 1 Peter 3, 7, that even for the righteous, if we aren't living in accordance to God's words and ways, if husbands aren't living with their wives in an understanding way, their prayers will be hindered. Well, if that's for a Christian, our prayers can be hindered. What about for the unbelieving? There's a lot of praying that goes on in the name of Jesus, and yet they don't have a relationship with Jesus. And so as a result of that, they have not been brought to God. And so God will not hear or heed their prayers. And so it's very important we understand the suffering of Christ was for our reconciliation. And then we talked very briefly about how that came about. How do we do? How does that manifest itself in our lives and through repentance and faith? And so we we're seeing that He's made payment for us, but it's not for all. And that even though the, uh, uh, payment has been made, it's for those who will repent. And believe that will be brought to God. And so then we see first point that we'll be unpacking today is uh, verse, uh, number six, verse 18. And then that the suffering of Christ is seen in the crucifixion. It's seen in the crucifixion. When I say the suffering of Christ, is, uh, I want to be very clear, very explicit what I'm communicating. And that even the points that follow are communicating this particular thing, the sufferings that's being spoken of here is not just any sufferings that people didn't like him or they said mean things about him or they uh, or they uh, didn't want to follow him any longer in John chapter six. So we're speaking explicitly here about the crucifixion. That's what it says in verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, we're going to understand that. You think about what this means, and we've got to understand what does it mean. And so what does this phrase imply? What does this phrase mean to us? That he was being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So a couple questions. Does it mean that Christ then died in the flesh in his body? And when he died, his spirit came to life? Which what it means to made alive in the spirit? And if yes, then here's the question. If when his body died, his spirit came to life, then the question would be, was he not alive spiritually before his, this point in history? Was Jesus did not have a, a spirit in, in that sense? Did he, what, what does it mean that his spirit was made alive in this? And so, or does it mean that he died in the flesh, which some would believe, or died in the body, and then was resurrected bodily in the spirit? So when you read that he was he died in the flesh and then was made alive in the spirit. That ultimately that being made alive was his body. The physical body was then made alive in the spirit. That he was a now resurrected body. Is that what this implies? And there's a, a ton of debate right there and there alone. Uh, one thing I want to make sure that we understand. And that uh, many people doubt the, resu- uh, doubt the genuine death of Christ. They say that maybe he had fallen into some kind of a coma-like state. And then they put him in the tomb and after... He'd been in the tomb for a few days. He wasn't really dead, but came back alive. It's called the swoon theory. And so as a result of that, that Jesus really did not die a vicarious death for us. He was just uh, unconscious for a while. Well, there's a variety of reasons why that's not the case. Clearly, the Bible says here that he was put to death in the flesh. So if you're going to hold to the Bible, then that would be able to communicate here in a variety of other sections that Jesus literally died, right? So that's no... Very clear, it's very explicit here that that's what he's talking about. But then you begin to think about the Roman soldiers, and they were, this is what they did for a living, right? Those who would crucify individuals, they did that often. This was not something new to them, that they were like, this was their first go. Um, and so even the two thieves on the cross, uh, you, you see about their, their knees being broken, right? Their legs being broken so that it could expedite death quicker. 
And that's not what happens to Jesus, right? As a fulfillment of Scripture, that none of his bones were broken, and so it did not break his legs because he was already dead. He had already given up his spirit, as he said, Father, in your hands, I commit my spirit, one of the seven statements from the cross. And so as a result of that, we know that it can't mean what we asked before was, did his spirit come to life? Well, no, he'd granted, given up his spirit, so he had a spirit before he died physically. But you see that he'd given up his spirit, and so as a result of that, he was already dead. And so then they come up to, come up to him, see that he's dead, and just in continuing to ensure that he was dead, what do they do? They pierced his side with a spear, and out came blood and water. And so as a result, he would have bled to death. Uh, if he had not had already been dead uh, up to that point, but we see that he had. And so how are we to in, understand this particular text? He, he clearly was dead. He died physically. And so we believe the sufferings of Christ reached a climax in the crucifixion. I believe this phrase is simply stating that Christ died a physical death on the cross while his spirit was still alive. He was dead physically, but alive spiritually. His spirit has the ability then to travel, as we will see in the next point. And so the suffering of Christ, the death on the cross, is important to keep in view as we discuss suffering as a part of God's will, purpose, and for Christ and the church. And so we're thinking through this. Why is Peter putting this in here? Is that we want to make sure that we keep his sufferings in view of the sufferings of, of Christians, the sufferings of those who are currently alive, right? So Christ is now ascending to heaven. But the picture here is we want to be able to see this, is that suffering is not by accident. Sufferings of Christ was something that God had plan and so uh i don't believe that this the spirit here being made alive in the spirit speaking of the resurrection yet uh, as we'll see here in just a moment why i believe that and that the terminology is being used i believe it's speaking simply of when he was dead physically died his death in the flesh that ultimately his spirit was now free of the body that physical body uh and was been able to now move about uh in the places that that were in store for him to be able to go and, and do a variety of things. And so we're going to see that. But right now I want us to see suffering Christ seen in the crucifixion. is not something that was new to the New Testament. First Peter chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, which is a picture of the cross, the crucifixion. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. Matthew 26, 1 and 2, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Acts two twenty three. this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So here you see in God's sovereign will being accompanied with man's responsibility and so... It was according to, right, the, the scripture says, um, to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. However, you crucified him and you killed him by the hands of lawless men. Philippians 2.8, and him and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Colossians 1.20, and, uh, and through him to reconcile to him, himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross and then uh, a variety of others but we'll just end with hebrews 12 2 looking to jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of god so once again the crucifixion was the means by which uh, uh god used to accomplish this his will purpose and plan suffering was not accidental it was not an accidental byproduct of chance 
but was ordained to accomplish a divine end. We must realize that then our suffering too is not accidental or coincidental, but intentional when we suffer unjustly. And so when you think about the sufferings that you and I will go through physically, emotionally, relationally, uh, spiritually, when, we're, when we are attacked or reviled or accused or slandered uh, and a variety of other things, even martyrdom, that this was not an accident. It's not, not by chance. It's not that God uh, had certain control, but then sin is outside of his, his rule or reign or domain. He's not putting sin in people. He cannot tempt people to sin, nor is he tempted by sin, the Scripture says. So he's not responsible directly, but he, sti- he is in control that sin does not have the upper hand. And so we can trust God in that. And so as we see here, the sufferings of Christ is seen in the crucifixion, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, which leads to number seven. The suffering of Christ is a patient yet triumphant proclamation. A patient yet triumphant proclamation. Now, this is where this next Two points is, is going to be, and particularly this seventh point here, is going to probably be something uh, that many of you may not be familiar with or maybe familiar remotely. Uh, and I'm going to try to do my best to unpack it and unpack it rather quickly and hopefully concisely, but hopefully at the same time, clearly. I want it to be clear to us as we walk through this. But let me just say this up front. If you've watched any of the Chronicles of Narnia uh, series that were put on uh, movie form or if you read the books and you begin to see a variety of those and it's this mysterious magical land and you just begin to look at this and go man it's just like weird and unusual uh and it seems like it's not true or maybe you're familiar with uh J.R. Tolkien's series on uh, the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit and you see this fantastical land and all this uh this larger than life imagery it, listen it has nothing on the bible and as we're going to study here in just a moment as we walk through this these spirits in prison to begin to unpack this as a pretty phenomenal spiritual warfare that's taking place where superhuman creatures are roaming the earth. And so hope that whet your appetite just a little bit to pay attention to what's taking place here and why he would be proclaiming to these spirits in prison. So the suffering of Christ, as we've seen, is seen in the, in the crucifixion, but is also a patient yet triumphant proclamation. So we see in verse 19, it says, So now if he's been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which this spirit, he went and proclaimed to now the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So after the death of Christ on the cross, Jesus' body lay in a tomb, but his spirit was alive. I think that's what the preceding verse was communicating to us. And so this passage says that then his spirit, Jesus' spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Which begs the question, where did he go? He went to proclaim to some spirits in prison, but where did he go? And so I think we need to let the scripture communicate to us. You know, on, uh, immediately before he died, he's between two thieves, and one of the thieves had been, been reviling him with the other thief. And over some course of time throughout the crucifixion, this thief repents and begins to confess allegiance and confess trusting in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in that Jesus makes this claim to the repentant sinner. Luke twenty three forty three, And he, Jesus, said to him, one of the thieves being crucified on the cross, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
So there's, there's tells us something. Today, when I die, you're going to be with me in paradise. And so where did he go? He went to paradise. And so what does that mean? Well, the Old Testament Hebrew word, Sheol, uh, I'm going to get used to some words, and I'm not trying to be fancy or try to use terminology you may or may not be familiar with. I just want to try to help us to get some understanding of what this is taking place. So in Hebrew, there's a word called Sheol, and it's, to re- it's used to describe the realm of the dead. It's used to describe the realm of the dead. It simply means the place of the dead or the place of departed souls or spirits. The Gr- New Testament Greek equivalent of Sheol is the word you may be more familiar with is Hades, which also refers to the place of the dead. Other scriptures in the New Testament indicate that Sheol slash Hades is a temporary place where souls are kept as they await the final resurrection and judgment. For example, Revelations chapter 20 verses 11 through 15 gives a clear distinction between Hades, the place or the realm of the dead, and the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the permanent and final place of judgment for the lost. Hades, then, is a temporary place. Many people refer, refer to both Hades and the lake of fire as hell, and this causes confusion. Jesus did not go to a place of torment after his death, but he did go to Hades. All right, so remember Old Testament, Sheol, place of the dead, is now in the New Testament equivalent. We've got a new language, right, so... The Old Testament was translated into Greek, and so that's what you might hear might hear called the Septuagint. It's basically the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures that were translated into Greek, so that the Greek-speaking Jews now had a Greek Old Testament and a Greek New Testament, right? Because the New Testament was written in Greek, and so you see that translation there. And so you take got to use these words; they got to be synonymous. And so the New Testament rendering of Sheol would be Hades, and all that it means is the place of the dead. Now, well, where did we get Hades being hell, and how did all this come about? Well, thank you for asking. Sheol and Hades was a realm, right, the realm of the dead, the place of the dead, with two divisions, a place of blessing and a place of judgment. This is seen throughout. One of the clearest places that it's seen is in Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus, right? And the rich man had all this wealth and was... Uh, and uh, had this means he could be able to help somebody, and then you had Lazarus, this poor beggar that was just outside of his, his property, outside of his home, and he came and went, the rich man came and went and never ministered to this poor man. And it says that ultimately when they both die, right, the rich man who had everything was actually in wanting, and he was actually in hell, right? And so in that there was a place of torment. But then Lazarus, right, went to... Uh, the place of blessing, Abraham's bosom, it could be called, or paradise. And so it's the, bo- both were in Hades, the realm of the dead, or the Sheol of the Old Testament. That's what it was called, but it had two places, and it was divided by a chasm between them. And so it was a place of torment, and then a place for the righteous. And so this is what you see taking place here. So the abodes of the saved and the lost are both generally called Hades in the Bible. So that's the entire place. The abode of the saved, saved was also called Abraham's bosom in the King James Version or Abraham's side in the NIV. As you see in Luke chapter 16, verse 22, it's also called paradise, as we read in Luke chapter 23, verse 43. And the abode of the unsaved is called hell or Hades in Luke chapter 16, verse 23. And so it can be confusing. What's it talking about? Is it a, is it when it speaks of the place of the dead and it calls it Hades? Is that what's? Well, better way to translation is to call the entire thing Hades, 
and the aspect where they suffer hell. And the entire thing, Hades, and the place where the righteous go would be paradise or Abraham's bosom. And so in that, you see these abo- the, both abodes that are there, the abodes of the saved and the lost, but then are separated by a great chasm. And so when Jesus died, he went to the blessed side of Sheol called paradise. That's why in Luke chapter 23, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. He wasn't saying you're going to go with me and I'm going to go to hell and suffer more. And the reason we know that Jesus need not suffer anymore, why? That's why all scripture is important, is it not? The seven statements from the cross that you'll see throughout the, the synoptic gospels are important for us to be able to see what he means. And so in that, you see that Jesus said, to tell us die or it is finished. What's finished? The suffering for sin and sinners. He need not go to hell as far as the the, for the unrighteous to continue suffering so that he can make payment for sinners. He suffered all of that when God's wrath was poured out on him on the cross. Right? And that's why you see that wrath being poured out when he made one of the other statements from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? An Old Testament quotation. But then at the end of the cross, what does he say? Does he keep calling God, my God, my God? No, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit to that relationship uh, and that suffering that had taken place where he was separated from God in a, in a, in a, in a sense and a means with the wrath of God has been poured out on him. He cries out, my God, my God. But then just as he did before, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, which was, was happening um, before it, it, it intensified. And ultimately you see again, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And so uh, there's, I know there's much debate with the Apostles' Creed and that Jesus went to hell, it simply should, needs to be translated hell, uh, should be translated Hades, which is simply the place of the dead. So I told you we're going to get kind of weighty, but there's tons of debates that swirl around here. So that's just where he went. Now, what did his spirit do when he went? Our passage tells us in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So he went to proclaim something. Well, what did he proclaim? This is important because, as I told you last week, many have then come to believe uh, and an, uh, an understanding of purgatory, and they use this as one of the verses in Bible because the Bible never teaches anything about purgatory. They'll use this as a means. So he went to proclaim to those who were awaiting his arrival and that were granted potentially a second chance at salvation. Was that what this means? No, it's absolutely not what this means. So what did he proclaim? Well, the word proclaim, caruso in the Greek, simply means to preach or to herald. Jesus was proclaiming his victory over sin and the schemes of Satan. And I include the schemes of Satan there intentionally, as you'll see here in just a moment. John MacArthur says it this way. In the ancient world, as we talk about the the word Caruso, in the ancient world, heralds would come to a town as representatives of a ruler to make public announcements, announcements or to precede generals and kings in the procession celebrating military triumphs, announcing victories won in battle. This verb is not saying that Jesus went to preach the gospel. Otherwise, Peter would have likely used a form of the word euangelizo, uh, uh, which means to evangelize. Christ went to proclaim his victory to the enemy by announcing his triumph over sin, death, hell, demons, and Satan. So he could have used euangelizo, uh, the word that just simply means to, to proclaim the gospel, that he wasn't going to proclaim the gospel. He was simply going to herald, proclaim a message of triumph. And so then that's what he was doing. He went to proclaim. Then to whom did, did his spirit proclaim? Who is he going to talk to? This is important because many people believe that this were 
the Old Testament saints, and many people believe that this was uh, uh, saints, or maybe weren't saints, but they were given an opportunity to obey where the passage says that um, in verse uh, 19 and 20, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. And so he's going to be granting them a second chance. Where realize that's not the word that was used to grant them a second chance. So who, who are these spirits in prison? Well, what are we to understand? And, and uh, even before we answer that, what is this prison? Well, the word there simply uh, translate this the word prison is a pit of the abyss. And so this prison is some a pit of the abyss. And so, well, then it begs the question, then, do you ever see um, saints in prison? Nowhere in the New Testament do you see saints in prison. Nowhere is there a communication that saints are kept in prison. So we know it's not speaking of saints. And so what if it's sinners? They're going to be opportunity to be um, have a second chance. Well, it doesn't make sense because he should have used the word euangelizo or to, to evangelize, to preach the gospel, and he didn't use that word either. So how are we to reckon this? How are we supposed to understand what the Scripture is teaching? Well, the New Testament typically does not refer to this word when speaking of human beings. So the word there, spirits, is not the word that's often spoken of human beings. We have a spirit within us, but that's not typically the word that's used. So the word often used to speak of humans is a word that can be translated souls. If you, you keep, were to keep reading uh, in verse 20, it says that um, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, some translations would that the word persons there would be the word that would, you would use to be able to speak of human souls. And that's not to say that those during the days of Noah only had souls, but it was speaking of the total person, body and soul. And so here you begin to see that it's, it's, not, it's not speaking of, it could have used that word, talking about humans, but it didn't use that word. Uh, rather, it used the word spirits. And so when it's used, it's usually um, the word that's using, well, let me back up, the word spirit of souls, uh, spirits can speak to humans, but it's, it's never used without a qualified genitive. All that means is it's going to be used in, in, in concert with other words that bring clarity to be able to talk about what that spirit is. For example, Hebrews twelve twenty three, the spirits of the righteous. So it's bringing clarity to speaking of righteous human beings and we're righteous because of the spirit that was in them. But how do we understand the word spirits here that's being able to use? Well, the word most often uh, in, in scriptures in the New Testament is used to refer to angels. Used to refer to angels. So these spirits were either righteous angels or fallen angels or demons. And so I believe by the context that we're talking about fallen angels or demons because they were in prison as well as the passage speaks to their disobedience upon which they did not obey. And so uh, you don't see angels being disobedient uh, righteous angels, holy angels being disobedient, you always see of uh, demons or fallen angels as being disobedient. And so it then begs the question, well, why are these spirits, why are these fallen angels in prison? Well, they were in prison because they did not obey. Well, you might say then, but aren't demons or fallen angels always disobedient? I mean, how are they in prison because they did not obey when demons don't obey? Uh, that didn't make a lot of sense. So uh, this disobedience led to some kind of imprisonment. And so why was that the case? And if these demons or if demons are in prison, why are they still active, seen as active on the earth in the New Testament? You see, even throughout that the New Testament would speak about demons being active. Uh, and so if these guys were locked in prison, how can demons be active? Or even Satan that prowls around like a roaring lion, how could be he be locked up if he's 
in prison? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's a good question. The Bible does not say that all demons are imprisoned, but that these demons, these spirits, these fallen angels were imprisoned. Well, then, here's another question, right? So it builds upon itself, right? So when did this imprisonment or when did this disobedience happen? When did this... So if these demons were, were so bad that this disobedience led, that's more egregious than the sins or the disobedience of other demons, then when did this happen? Well, I think the passage gives us a clue as to the timing of this disobedience that even led to these rebel, uh, even led these rebellious ones to be locked away. And our passage states that it happened in the days of Noah, right? So if you keep reading this, as we walk through, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey there's the disobedience when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So you're going all the way back to Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4. Now, what would have happened in Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4? What's, what's, what clues are we are being given if they, it happened? This is God's patience in the days of Noah. So this is what I talked about in our passage that the sufferings of Christ is a patient yet triumphant proclamation that Jesus had been patient with them. And so what does this mean? Well, some mean to believe that Jesus was proclaiming not to spirits in a literal prison, but these were God's proclamation of Christ through Noah as he was building the ark. And I don't believe that's what's clearly communicated in this particular passage it's because he's not given those guys a second chance, as, it, as I mentioned before. I believe it's fallen angels. Well, does the Bible help us to see that anywhere? Right? And so how, where do we see that? And how, how can we begin to... Get some understanding. So if demons do not obey, why is this disobedience any different? What did they do? Let's answer that. This passage does not give us insight into this egregious sin that led to their imprisonment. But other New Testament passages shed some light on this subject. Jude chapter, or there's only one chapter of Jude. Jude verses 6 and 7. Listen to what the Bible says. Jude verse 6 and 7. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire or other strange, other flesh or strange flesh, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And so you're, you're seeing that there's some angels that have overstepped their position, their position of authority, and left their proper dwelling, and now he's kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day, the judgment of the great day. Sounds a lot like they were imprisoned, is it not? The great chains. They were imprisoned in an abyss, a gloomy darkness. And so what, what did they do? It says they left their proper dwelling and they did not stay within their own position of authority. What does that mean? Well, the text gives us some aid. In Jude, verse 7 gives us some aid. It says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise. So just as and likewise are telling us something. Well, something that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah also happened here with these angels, these fallen angels, these demons. And some, the thing that they did was just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so this leaving their proper dwelling, uh, not staying within their position of authority, it's going to be similar to what's taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
So what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities? It says, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Also translated, other flesh or strange flesh. And this then served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude is warning about not living in that way, but he's using these fallen angels as an example. So that should give us a clue. Well, then 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says this about these fallen angels. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And then he, he continues on. So we are seeing again, he did not spare the angels. They sinned and now he's got them chained away, right? And this picture imagery, what I believe is the same terminology there of being in prison, this abyss that the book of Revelation speaks of. And so what's, how do we tie all this together? Well, what's taking place here? Well, I, I, let's go back just to, for a moment to Jude when it talked about this sexual immorality and this unnatural desire. What, what's, what was taking place? Or if you remember and you go back to the book of Genesis, God was going to, Abraham was praying and Lot was in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he's, 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 Abraham's interceding on behalf. And so God sends angels, right, in human form to go to that particular city. And, and, and meanwhile, uh, Abraham's praying and interceding that, Lord, if you could just find a few righteous people, don't destroy the city. And so God finds or sends the angels into the city and, and uh, Lot encounters them and brings them into his home. And do you remember what happened? It's a really unusual section of scripture there. It says that the men of the city saw these male angels, these angels in male form. And it says the men, the men of the city were so wicked, were so vile, they were sodomites, right? They were homosexuals and they wanted to sleep with these angels. That they pressed in even to like to harm Lot. And the angels had to open the door and, and pull Lot into the house and shut the door. And then the angels struck them with blindness and they were groped about and couldn't find the, the handle to the door to be able to get inside the house. That there was an unnatural desire for angels an unnatural flesh that they had encountered that they desired to have sex with. And this is what the Bible says. It was the likewise or the just as, the sexual immorality that was taking place that God had condemned. And so he says that he had done that to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and that this is exactly the same imagery that was given toward these angels who had left their proper abode, who had left their proper position, their proper authority and uh, as a result of that, um, we're, we're desiring to um, not remain within the authority and the rights that they had. And so they were, they had come to earth. And so the picture here is, is that, well, okay, it's, but speaking of the time of Noah, so what's taking, how do we know? Okay, I understand there's something with angels and being in human form and, and sex, uh, but what does all that mean? Well, Genesis chapter 6, where our passage communicates to us about the time of Noah, gives us some instruction. Because they formerly did not obey these fallen angels when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 6, hold your place there in First Peter. Genesis chapter 6, we're going to look at 1 through 5. And this is where I was telling you, it's pretty crazy here what we're going to unpack. But it, all this has something to do with where our text is going to go. And I'll try to re- move through this rather rapidly. Genesis chapter 6, beginning 1 through 5. 
It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide or in or contend with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 days. And the Nephilim speaks of giants were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. So you're seeing these giants, these Nephilim were on the earth. And how did they come upon the earth? Because it was, it was afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. And these Nephilim, they were mighty men of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his, of his heart was only evil continually. What does that mean? Well, if you couple it with what First Peter says and Second Peter says and Jude says, you begin to understand that these fallen angels had come to earth, these sons of God, which refers to angels. It's, sons of God is never used in the, in the Old Testament to speak of men. It's always used in the Old Testament to speak of angels. And as a result of that, um, they, they've taken human form and they've come to have uh, marital relations with, with women, the daughters of man. So you see the sons of God and the sons of man having uh, what it would be superhuman demon Babies, which is the Nephilim, the giants of the earth, the renowned of that particular time. Now, imagine now, why would these demons do that? Well, could it be strictly a lustful intent? They were attractive. But is there a greater scheme that would have been in place? Well, remember, there was a promise made in the very beginning. You remember the promise? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I shall crush the head of the serpent and he shall bruise my heel. There's going to be a fatal blow going to be given to Satan. But it's going to come through time. And so ultimately you see that as this has progressed, Satan's constantly then out to prevent that. And so if demons were to come and to populate with the earth, as the earth began to multiply, it said, that the sons of God, these angels would come and they begin to have demon children, then guess what? Angels, God, Jesus didn't come to die for angels. Jesus came to die for humans. And so if there could be this plan to subvert God's, to, to morph these, uh, these humans into these demon humans, then ultimately the salvation couldn't come through the Messiah. And hence why then God chose to destroy the whole earth. He had to rid the earth of these, these superhuman individuals so that it would not continue to populate all over the earth. And so Genesis chapter 6, I told you, it was kind of like Narnia and the Hobbit, right? It's just these superhumans that were on the face of the planet. And that's why then the Bible would can you say that the whole earth, you may think, well, how are they any more wicked than we are? How, how is it that this is, that you see this kind of desire, like, and that God says he looks at man and all their, their thoughts are evil continually in their heart. I mean, the Bible says all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. Like, it's not like I'm thinking right, righteous things. Well, it wasn't simply because of that. It was because there was a more elaborate plan in, in, in motion. And so God wipes it clean and starts over with Noah. And so that passage describes certain fallen angels who left the angelic domain to indulge in sexual sin with humans, just as the men of Sodom and Gomorrah attempted to engage in perverted sex with angels. So you're seeing that description of Jude 
and description of Genesis 19 with uh, the angels there in Sodom and Gomorrah and the men wanting to have sex with them is, is a, a synonym for one another. And so you think, well, wait a minute, I've heard other translations about these sons of God. These sons of God wasn't necessarily speaking of angels, but they could be explained in other ways. Well, first of all, you need to understand the sons of God are juxtaposed to the da- against the daughters of men. They're using those to, to be against one another. And so the contrast is between the supernatural beings and women. The sons of God cannot mean, cannot mean just men or they would be called sons of men. Neither can they be righteous men of the righteous line of uh, a, a, a righteous line of people or the Sethites. Some people would say it was the line of Seth, the godly line. And so they were having, uh, they were intermarrying with others that weren't the godly line. But here's the reality. If they were the godly line, why did God kill them all? And then why was God even angry with the Sethites for, for intermarrying with pagan women when God had made no prohibitions that they shouldn't marry with other women? You don't see that until later on in the Mosaic Law. So why, why is God getting mad at people and smiting them down and destroying the whole earth when he didn't give them any instructions they shouldn't do it? Well, maybe he did and he just didn't write it in the Bible. Well, that's, okay, well, you can just make up all kinds of reasons and say it's just not in the Bible, right? And so the sons of God and the, 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 the uh, daughters of men are to be against one another. It's just to be a, com- a contrast to one another. And so it can't be these righteous line of people or the Sethites because they, that does not contrast with daughters of men as if all women were unrighteous or all righteous were the sons of God were only men. Right? So then you would say, well, women are bad and men are godly. Well, somebody say, well, that's exactly what the Bible meant to say. No, it wasn't what the Bible meant to say. Right? And so then we begin to say, well, how do you even determine, discern what the Bible meant by sons of God? Well, the phrase sons of God um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Hebrew there, but it always refers to angels in its other Old Testament uses. So John, uh, Job 1.6, Job 2.1, Job 38.7, Psalm 29.1, Psalm 89.6. Every time it's used in the Old Testament, it's used to refer to angels. This term is all, also always used of, of those brought directly into being by God. So the sons of God were those that were created by God himself. Now, that's important for us to know. Why is that so important? Because if God brought them into being, they were not created through procreation, through human birth, such as the Sethites would be, or nobles or kings or, or others that might be used at that particular time. Heavenly spirits are then being contrasted with earthly men. These then are fallen angels who acted perversely, overstepping the boundaries of their realm. They defied God by leaving their spirit world to enter the human realm. All right, so you see the contrast there that's, that's taking place. And so you're seeing these sons of God were angels created directly by God, and the, son, the daughters of man were those who were women who were being born through normal human procreation. All right? Now, that could pose a problem if you're thinking these spiritual human kind of relationships when Matthew chapter 22 says uh, that that can't happen, right? How can demons marry women and have children when Matthew twenty two thirty says something different? Look what Matthew twenty two thirty says. For in the resurrection... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Well, there went your theory, Pastor. Now, that can't be it because the Bible says that angels in heaven can't do that. They're not married or given in marriage. So how does this happen? Well, first of all, the answer is that angels aren't in heaven. They had stepped outside their, their heavenly realm, right? That's one of the reasons they, were, they disobeyed out of their rightful position in their, their rightful realm. And they were on earth. And while they're on earth, they had, they had taken on human form. And so, ultimately, in heaven, they, they don't, they're neither male nor female. They don't produce children. 
but they had taken on human form. They were on the earth to produce children with women on the earth. And so ultimately this whole process has been to say that ultimately they could take human form. We've seen that in Genesis chapter 18, uh, Genesis chapter 19. Both of those were the angels that had come uh, to Abraham and then they went to save uh, Lot. And then in Hebrews 13, 2, the Bible says, be careful that you would entertain strangers. You might be entertaining angels unaware. Well, if they were sitting there with these big wings, right, and they were they're glowing, I don't think they would be unaware that we might be entertaining some angels. Well, how are we, how are we unaware that we were entertain, entertaining angels? Because they look like another human being. Hebrews 13, verse 2. And so you see here then that ultimately Jesus was proclaiming a victory to demons who was trying to foil his plot and his plan, the purposes of God. And imagine, this is what it was like. Potentially these demons in prison, and I don't know how, how they could be corresponded to, if they even had correspondence with anybody or anything that might be able to happen. But just imagine, they think, man, we've crucified the Messiah. He is, he is taken down. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and begins to proclaim his victory over them. And that what they had tried to foil back in Genesis chapter 6 didn't work. And God had, had swept them away and ultimately had protected the lineage. And ultimately that he was the one that they had been waiting on. And that ultimately to, to free up man from sin. And that even though their plans had been to prevent that, he's now in the, in the spirit showing up, talking to these spirits saying, it did not work. Oh, that's good. That's good. So even in the midst of suffering, and this, that's, that's why Peter wants to show this. Like sometimes in our worst forms and some of the most heinous things acts that happen, you think, how could this be God's plan? Remember, it didn't take God by surprise. Before the foundations of the world, there was a lamb that was slain. So Jesus is showing that it was by the means of his suffering that he gained victory over sin, sinners, spirits, fallen spirits, and Satan himself. And this victory can be ours as well. Well, how is this possible? Our next point communicates that. The suffering of Christ is the only means of salvation. Now, this one is full of controversy as well. Verse 20 and 21, full of controversy as well. The suffering of Christ is the only means of salvation. So you're coming right out of that. He's preaching these spirits in prison upon which he was patient during the days of Noah, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So we're still talking about the times of Noah and the Noah and his wife and there are three sons and the three daughters-in-law that were brought safely through the water. And it says, now baptism, which corresponds to this, which is a picture of this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So what was, let me ask some clarifying questions to be able to help us here, as it, we're, going to be, we're going to be comparing and contrasting these two events, the flood and the death of Christ. So what was the purpose of the flood? The water there of the flood was a means of God's judgment on the earth. I don't take time to read it, but if you'll just write this down, Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. It's right after the section that we had just read about these fallen, the sons of God, these fallen angels. So Genesis 6, 5 through 7, and Genesis 6, 11 through 13. It's going to talk about God's judgment was going to be poured out on the earth. And so that's the purpose of the flood. What was the purpose of the ark? What well, was a twofold purpose? One, the ark had a, um, uh, number one, it was a witness of God's pending judgment and a means of salvation for all who would enter. That's why in Genesis 6, it says that I will not strive with man or contend with man forever, but I will allot his days to 120 days. How long did it take Noah to build the ark? 120 days, right? So it's a means by which God's saying, 
I'm going to strive with you for 120 days. You're going to be warned. And so first it was a witness of God's pending judgment. As they saw the ark being constructed, you're seeing trust. There's something that's being constructed for a purpose. And even though they had not seen rain, they had not seen floods, they were about to. They were about to see a massive baptism. So it was a witness of God's pending judgment and a means of salvation for all who would enter. Number two, the ark was the means of God's grace for salvation through his coming judgment. The ark was the means of grace for salvation through the coming judgment. They were going to have to go through that judgment, but it was going to be God's means through it. Well, then who were the eight persons that were saved from this judgment? As we saw before, as I alluded to before, it was Noah and his wife. They had three sons and they had their sons had three. Uh, each had a wife. There was to be three daughters-in-law as well. And so you see eight persons, as the scripture says in First Peter 3. Well, then how were they saved? This is going to be important for us to understand. How were they saved? How were Noah, uh, his wife, and his six, um, his three sons and three daughters-in-law saved? Well, the scripture says in verse 20, they were brought safely through the water. Right? They were brought safely through the water. And so they were, how they were brought safely through the water? They were brought safely through the water through the ark, in the ark. And so then the scripture tells us here, so they were brought safely through the water, and then there goes, now baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So there was a saving of Noah and his family, and now it says, now baptism is going to be like this. It's going to correspond. It's going to be a picture of this. It's going to be a metaphor of this, and it's, going to, it's now going to save you. So what does he mean by this? Well, let's first look at the word, what does baptism mean? Much controversy with the word baptism, right? The word baptism in the Greek simply means to immerse or dip. It's a common word, right? You got a wife doing some dishes. She dips the, the dish into the water, and that's just a picture of the word baptism. Baptizo in the Greek, right? So it's just a word that means to immerse or to dip. Nothing super spiritual about that. Just immerse or dip. Well, how did it get all this? confusion then surrounding its meaning in English. Well, there's, very, very quickly, there's a variety of words that were, when the Bible was being translated in English, uh, were not translated, right? So, manana in Spanish means, thank you, tomorrow or the morning, right? So, either one, so tomorrow morning or in the morning. And so, that's what it would be able to translate. So, that's how you would transliterate it. But if you're going to, or you're translated, if you're going to transliterate something, you basically take the, the writing and you create a word. So you take the writing in whatever language it is and you move it over to this new language and you just translate the letters over, but it, may, it doesn't make any word. And so ultimately you just got a brand new word that's made up with a bunch of letters that no one knows. And so then you get to define what the, the word means at that point. And so there was not a word baptized in English. It was a transliteration of the word baptizo, B-A-P-T-I-Z-O. And so they're taking the Greek letters, translating those, the letters, transliterating the letters into English letters, and it created a new English word, baptize. And so therefore, the, the translators did that because there was much controversy about how to translate. There were so many denominations that had taught a variety of things about what that means that they said, listen, if we translate it accurately... It's going to hinder people from reading the Bible because they're going to look, at, look up that verse and be like, that's not what we believe, and they won't read the Bible. And so they transliterated. They just translated the letters, and they did not translate the words. Does that make sense? And so baptize is one of those words. Deacon is one of those words. Amen, hallelujah are words like that. It's just simply transliterated. 
And so then we get to make up a meaning. That's typically why we have so much confusion in what all those words mean, right? Is that it has a meaning. We just didn't, it wasn't translated in, uh, into its proper meaning. And so it simply means to dip, to immerse. Well, then how does this, the Bible says, then baptism then, immersion corresponds to this. So how does this, how does it correspond to the ark and the waters of the flood? The passage speaks that baptism, which corresponds, and that's the word antitupon. The word antitupon is where we get the word anatype, right? A picture of, a symbolism of, right? That this was a type of Christ that sometimes is being said of. It's an anatype. It's a picture of something else. So it corresponds to this. And so it says baptism now corresponds uh, to this, now saves you. So immersion into Christ and his suffering for us on the cross is now the means by which a person is saved from pending judgment, which is eternal judgment in the future. As the ark was the means of God's grace to be saved through the waters of judgment, Christ is also is the only means of God's grace to be saved through the waters of the judgment to come. However, the coming judgment will not be water, but fire, right? Hell. This is going to be the picture that we're going to see here. So then it begs the question then, well, does this even speak to water baptism at all? And you take somebody who's a baptismal regenerationist, meaning a person's born again in baptism. And I would say, no, it's not at all what this is speaking of. So what's the immersion that he's speaking of? Well, I think Peter makes it very clear. He'd not intend to teach that physical water baptism is the means of salvation because he states even in the text itself, verse 21, that baptism now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body as if it was something physical, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection. And so it's not the physical baptism, whether metaphoric baptism that's speaking of, uh, not metaphoric, but taking of the symbolic baptism that we would do as Baptists, or even of the or baptism regeneration, a literal baptism that would save you. I don't think he had either of those primarily in mind. That's why he says, not as removal of dirt from the body. He's talking about us being immersed in Christ. But you have a lot of people that would say, that, what about that? The New Testament teaches nothing after the resurrection of anyone who's been saved that hasn't been baptized. And I would wholeheartedly agree, but it doesn't mean that baptism saves you. And there is imagery of an individual who went to heaven, who went to paradise, and yet wasn't baptized, right? But that was prior to, that was the thief on the cross, but that was, many would argue that was prior to his death, and that was prior to his resurrection. After his resurrection, you don't see anyone who is a genuine follower of Christ who hasn't been baptized. And I would agree. But is that what he's speaking of here? Now, I would not agree that's what he's speaking of here because I think Peter makes clear, not as removal from dirt from the body. But, then how are we to, but isn't baptism important? It absolutely is important. It's a command. We should obey it. We're supposed to, to teach it. And so I think it's extremely important, utterly important. And you see it almost immediate as people are coming to faith in Christ or being baptized. I think it's a command that we should obey, we should follow, but ultimately it's not immediate. I mean, it's not a means of salvation. What do you do when somebody then says, well, uh, maybe you're talking to a Mormon or someone else and or, or someone that teaches baptism regenerationists, and they'll use this passage and try to teach this. Well, here's the question you ask them. Well, it's referring, it says that baptism now saves you and it corresponds to the baptism that was before speaking of Noah and the ark and the water. And so you'd be able to say, well, it was through the water that they were saved. Well, then here's the question you need to ask everyone who teaches that. Well, who were in the water during the flood? Was it Noah and his family? Well, kind of. But I'm not I mean like, but who physically got wet? Not those who were saved. Were they saved? No. 
Now, who was in the water in a symbolic way, but they were primarily in the ark. And they were, the ark was in the water uh, enduring the judgment, but they were in the ark. They weren't in the water. They weren't, they didn't get wet. They were in the ark. They weren't in the flood. They were in the ark, which was in the flood. And so they were spared. And so the question is that if you were going to ask that, well, then who was actually in the water being baptized at that moment? Well, if you're talking physical water, let's use imagery directly. And man, none of those were spared. They were all condemned because water was a judgment. And so as a result, who were in the ark during the flood? Noah and his family, and they were the only ones who were saved. And so the same imagery there is for us. So then how does baptism now save us? As it corresponds to this, being immersed in Christ as Noah and his family were immersed in the ark is the only means of salvation. That's what the passage is trying to teach. It's talking about the suffering of Christ. And so this is the picture that we're seeing here. Does the New Testament teach that? It absolutely does. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so it's not talking water baptism here. It's talking about being immersed. It's what the work translates, being immersed in Christ. And so it says that you would do that for a good conscience. Right, not, an, uh, uh, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. What does that mean? It means trusting in Christ as the only means to have a new life and to know that our sins have been, been forgiven in Christ. That we, therefore, our conscience will not condemn us because we have been born again. Just some passages to look up. Romans 2.15, Hebrews 9.14, and Hebrews 10.22 both speak about an evil conscience, that our conscience, which was evil, has been cleansed. And this happens not because of baptism, but because of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for us. And I know I'm out of time, but we hit these last two because uh, Dale's going to be preaching for us next week, and I don't want him to have to wait another week to be able to preach for us. Let me just hammer these last two re- relatively quickly, and it'll help us, and we'll be finished up. The suffering of Christ um, uh, is uh, the suffering of Christ is vindicated by His resurrection. It says that ultimately that we are having a, um, appealed to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Once again, not a picture of physical baptism, but a picture of trusting in Christ. And so what I mean when I say the suffering of Christ is vindicated by his resurrection, what was being vindicated? How, what does it mean to vindicate someone? And so that'd be important. So to vindicate someone would be to clear them from an accusation, to be able to clear them from some kind of suspicion, to afford justification or to justify something. To uphold or to justify by an argument or evidence. To assert, maintain, or to defend against opposition. So the opposition is what Messiah suffers. That's what it means that Jesus was going to be vindicated through his suffering. And so what's not clear about Jesus is, is he the Messiah? Because what Messiah was going to, be, was going to need to be, that what needed to be upheld was that the Messiah could suffer. And the resurrection was going to be proof that, yes, a Messiah does suffer. And yes, Jesus is the Messiah, and the resurrection proves that to be the case. The resurrection was vindicating Jesus that he was indeed the Messiah, and it's the Messiah to suffer. The Jews were looking for a reigning Messiah, not a suffering one. However, Christ's suffering was not a defeat, but a means of deliverance for all who long for the Messiah, as well as those who were looking and will look to the Messiah for our day and even the days to come. So this was precisely the point of this entire passage. Suffering is not an afterthought. Or an accident. Suffering is the very means that God uses to accomplish his purposes over time. 
The cross is the ultimate example of that suffering and was the means of God's glory. Therefore, Jesus was resurrected by the power of God, and we too will be sustained and even vindicated when we suffer unjustly as well. That's what Ephesians 1.19 says. It was talking about Paul's prayer to the saints in Ephesus. And he's, wants, he's praying that they're, they're, they would come to the knowledge of truth and be able to understand what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So that what Christ, God did to raise Christ from the dead is the same resurrected power that he's placed within us. That we too will be resurrected. So the resurrection vindicated the sufferings of Christ which ultimately led to, uh, led to the fact that the suffering of Christ is lastly rewarded in his ascension and exaltation. That ultimately all that suffering was rewarded in his ascension and his exaltation. So after the resurrection of Christ, Peter then had the privilege to witness Christ's ascension, who has gone into heaven, it says. And the Bible is replete with examples of Christ's uh, ascension uh, mark sixteen nineteen. so then the lord jesus after he had spoken to them was taken up into heaven and sat down to the right hand of god luke 24 50 through 53 then he led them as far out as bethany and lifting up his hands he blessed them while he blessed them he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to jerusalem with great joy and were continuing the temple blessing god acts 1 9 through 11 and when he said these things they were looking on and when he was he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight and as they were gazing into heaven as he went Behold, two men stood by them with white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Just Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come to you in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And in Ephesians 1, 20-22, Hebrews 8, 1, Hebrews 9, 24, I mean, again and again and again, the Bible says that Jesus had ascended into heaven. But he not only ascended to heaven, he was also exalted in heaven. It says, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. And so the right hand of God is a, is a term that helps us to understand. It speaks of a seat of honor, a, speak, a seat of authority, and a seat of power. If you remember when the disciples were talking about when Jesus came into his, turn, his kingdom and he talked about who was going to sit at his right hand, it was an obvious position of power, a position of authority, a position of, uh, of, of great prominence. And so this is exactly what the Bible says happened to Jesus after he, uh, as a result of him being rewarded. And I could give you a whole variety of verses there. So, question, what does this ascension and exaltation represent? Well, the Bible says to us that the ascension and exaltation of Christ is why all angels and authorities and powers are subject to him. Remember, I told you from the beginning, uh, from the beginning where we're now ending. Remember, there were bookends. Christ also suffered. And in that suffering, what did he do? Through the resurrection of Christ, he's now ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God where uh, all angels and authorities and powers are put are being are made subject to him. That's why Peter injects all this about these angels who were the spirits. Why he went to go proclaim, proclaim to these spirits is because why they thought they could thwart the will and plan of God. And Jesus is showing up saying, no, not so fast, my friend. I am he. You cannot thwart the hand and the plans of God. And Jesus was proclaiming even in the midst of suffering his victory. This is exactly the point. That Peter's trying to make to these Christians. You are going to suffer. You are going to suffer for righteousness sake. People are going to revile you and slander you and speak evil against you and speak of you as evildoers. But when they do, may your conduct be such that, that they will be shamed in that. And that in, in through those means, God is going to use it for the day of visitation that God may receive glory. That even through that, they might be saved through your good conduct. 
And so why is Christ's ascension and exaltation important to Christians? And this is where we'll end up. It is important because the Bible communicates that Christians will reign with Christ. If Jesus is currently reigning in heaven at the right hand of the Father, then despite our current sufferings, we too are victorious in him, just as Noah was in the ark. Romans 8.17 says that we will do that. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We're fellow heirs with him, but we must also suffer. Galatians 4, 7, so you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. The scriptures are clear that his children will reign with him, but this reign with Christ for all eternity is not without suffering on earth temporarily. Our current suffering is a, but a means of preparing us for what Jesus has prepared for us. What's the takeaway? Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The position and power of authority. That's why Matthew, 8, Matthew 28 can say, All authority has been given unto me. Above the earth, on the earth, beneath the earth. Christ is ruling and reigning. And we will rule and reign with him. Barring we suffer with him, as those passages have said. We will suffer with him too. And so in the midst of suffering... Men and women, don't look at that as an accident or it's incidental or an afterthought. It is ordained by God and it is allowed by God, as First Peter chapter 1 said to us, to, for the tested genuineness of our faith, that we may see the great glory of God being made manifest in our lives. Be encouraged when you suffer. And when you suffer unjustly, suffer for righteousness' sake. Because God knows exactly where you are. And he is not taken by surprise. And even when everything looked like it was gone wrong, it was the very means, it was the very will and purpose of God that Christ should suffer and that he would go make proclamation to the saints or to the, the uh, spirits that were in prison who long ago had tried to thwart his will and plan. Satan is on a leash. And he can only go so far. Our God reigns. Let's pray together. God. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.